So when you, uh, when you send people to the website, yes? Am I on? We're not doing this again, are we? It is. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm scared. First service, we had some technical difficulties. So we were just proving that it wasn't the, like the show that people were coming for in the first service. Um, uh, so when you send people to the website, that's the, that's the opening video on the website now to introduce us to people. So pretty cool, pretty fun. Um, uh, I, there's a lot of people in, in our congregation and then in our nation too right now who are just, we just seem to be at a place right now where we've got a number of people who are grieving for different things. So I want to take just a second and pray for these families. And, and there's a good chance, like I, I feel confident there's two or three names that I just am missing on, out of this list. So you know who they are. Please be praying for them. But we've got a number of families. So I want to pray. And, and especially as we're going into the section of scripture we're looking at today or the section from the Bible that we're looking at today, um, for I just I, I really want to pray for God to to guide us through that. So please uh, pray with me if you will, Father. Um, as as we open up the Bibles in front of us and we begin to dig into some of this um, stuff that can be a challenge for some of us, Lord, I, I pray that you would guide us. Uh, I pray that your Spirit would make sure that that we are clear in our understanding of the truth, Father. For these families um, who are facing grief. Um, uh, different ways, different things going on, the Whitmans and the Foremans and the Andersons and the Adalians in particular. And Lord, I know there are others I'm just blanking on. I, I pray that you would speak into their lives with the type of comfort, um, the type of, uh, of care, the type of insight and wisdom that only you can give. And at the same time, Lord, that you would guide us as their family and friends to come alongside them, um, to be a blessing to them with our words and even more so with our silence um, and just our presence that we would love them well. Um, Lord, we also want to lift up those families um, who are suffering right now after the shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue. And Lord, I, I pray that somehow you would glorify your name and that you would draw people unto yourself even in the midst of this type of tragedy. Many different things going on in our nation right now, much division and challenge and hardship and pain. And uh, Lord, I pray that you, you are the one who unifies. We're not going to pull that off. No amount of people saying they want to unify is ever going to make people unify. Um, you are the great... Um, the great unifier, the one who is the, your son is the prince of peace. And even though he came to bring a sword and in some ways to divide, um, God, at the same time, we can be unified under him. Um, so Lord, teach us that even though there is not uniformity, that there is unity. Thank you, Father, uh, for your love to choose us in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to go into the story of, um, uh, that we find in John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. You're probably familiar with it. I really want to urge you, if you have a Bible... Um, that you would open up to this passage in John chapter 7. We have a Bible with you. If you don't, there's probably one in the chairs in front of you. Um, if you're like most people, you can actually, we now get to use the ancient term and say you can open up your Bible and scroll um, to the correct site, just like they did in first century. And, uh, and so you get, to, you get to scroll up to there. And in John chapter 7, verse 53, I'm going to start reading, the, um, they each went to his own house but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So what's going to go on, and I probably won't get to all of it today, first service being an indicator. I won't get to all of this today. We'll wrap some of this up next week. But but in the midst of this, what's going to happen is this woman is, Jesus is then going to start doing some really strange things. So they bring this woman caught in adultery, and Jesus' response to this is to begin writing in the dust on the temple floor. 
And so they're out in the outdoor section of the temple, certainly, because they would not be allowed at the indoor part, and certainly she wouldn't um, inside the temple part of it. And so they're out in the court, uh, the court of the Gentiles probably, and, and, and there there would be a lot of discussion and teaching with tile floors, kind of uh, stone tile floors, but there would be dust. Obviously, the people wandered through the dirt, and they walked, and they walked in, and so they would have, I mean, there would have been a, a, a layer of dust and dirt on the floor of the temple um, at every part at all times. Um, and so this is what so Jesus kneels down and starts writing in this, and, and after he writes for a little bit, the people say something else to him, and then and then he responds, and he's going to write a little bit more. And the Bible's not going to tell us what he writes. And this is the only account anywhere in your Bible of Jesus writing something himself um, during his time on earth. And then at some point, whatever Jesus is writing is going to start causing these people to leave. The people who brought the woman, they're going to start wandering off into the crowds of the temple or maybe even to leave the temple grounds entirely. <clears throat> and by the time they're done, Jesus and this woman caught in adultery are going to be sitting, just the two of them. And Jesus is going to say to her, who condemns you? And she's going to say, apparently no one. And he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, you may not know this, but my uncle is a Methodist pastor, has been. He's recently retired a Methodist pastor and, and, uh, in Alabama, and I was, I was never part of my plan to be a pastor. That was, that's a huge surprise to me, and you too, probably, but the, that was never part of the plan. But he, he spent his whole, this was, this was his career, this was his dream, his vision, his calling, and so, um, and so he, he one time told me a story. I've heard many stories. He's a good, he does a good job preaching, and, and, uh, and he's told a story uh, about a man who came to his church. As the man came to his church and said, Pastor, I... Um, uh, I uh, I really feel bad about my sin, and I want to do something to kind of pay for that. And my uncle told him, well, that's, that's not how this works, um, and so you can't, you can't do it that way. And he's like, well, I know that, I just, but I, I feel like I need to do something that will make me feel better. And so he says, fine, there's a Sunday school room that needs to be painted downstairs. Um, there's some paint already in the room. Why don't you just go paint down there? And so this guy goes downstairs, and he, he, uh, he paints one wall and realizes he doesn't have paint to finish. So he finds some paint thinner, and it puts it in there and mixes it up and paints a second wall and realizes he still doesn't have enough paint. So he adds some more paint thinner and stirs it up, paints a third wall. And, and uh, so I, I don't have enough for this last wall. So he adds a little more paint thinner and stirs it up and paints this last wall. And then goes to give my uncle and says, um, hey, I'm done. So my uncle goes downstairs, sees the room, of course, with four different shades on the wall and says, son, I think you need to repaint and thin no more. <laughs> so there you go. That's how my uncle introduced this passage. So I thought uh, in honor of him, I would, I would start there. Now you know why I don't tell jokes at the beginning of the sermon typically. So, um, all right. So uh, there's, that's the, you now know the summary of the story. That's the idea that here's this. And, and we're, we're going to have to jump into something that's pretty tough here. Um, I've joked a couple of times about when I said to different leaders, like different speakers and teachers and pastors in the church, including Paul McKenzie, like, what do you want to preach out of the book of John? His first words were, not John chapter 8. And you're about to see why. So in John, in John chapter 8, I want you to hear something. We're going to have to look at something and spend most of our time today discussing something called textual analysis. That we're going to have to look at this passage a little bit differently than we looked at John chapter 7 or that we're going to look at the rest of John chapter 8. Um, there's a reason for that. If this is something that is fascinating to you, I'm going to go ahead and give you a name and I'll probably give you his name at the end. But if you want to look online at the writings of a guy named Dr. Daniel Wallace, Dan Wallace, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. This is an area of expertise for him. 
And what we're going to talk about, there's fascinating stuff to learn. I mean, it is, it is something you could, it could become a fascinating area of topic for you for years. <coughs> Textual analysis is, is a brilliant study. Um, and especially when you're talking about scripture, what you're talking about is analyzing the text itself of scripture. What is it? Where does it come from? What are its sources? And this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of misunderstandings in the church about what we have in our hands. Um, especially growing up in the South or in the Bible Belt, like, like many of us have, we've believed, we've been taught all kinds of magic about the Bible, that you chase around demon-possessed people with the Bible and it burns their skin if you touch them with a type of stuff, okay? Many of us have multiple Bibles in our house that just sit there to scare away evil spirits, I guess. We, we, think, we think that somehow it's going to make us more spiritual to own Bibles. Um, that's not the case, um, that, by the way. That's, if you think that's true, it's not. You, owning a Bible is not going to make you more spiritual or more godly, um, it may make you more responsible, but it doesn't make you anything else. Um, in fact, the power of Scripture is what's in it, is the inspired word of God from the Holy Spirit, and then illuminated as we read it and study it and memorize it and meditate on it. That's, that's where it changes us. And we believe firmly in this, in the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that God Almighty can change us through His Word. That's why we have an invitation at the end of every service, is based on the assumption that there's some kind of response you need to make internally or externally to what you've heard. Um, there certainly is for me. There's always a conversation to be had with God at the end of this. Um, but as we look at this passage, <clears throat> you have to realize this, this stuff, um, that it kind of like, are, are, if maybe you're one of those people, you're old enough like me, that before things were collectible, um, you had stuff. And so all of my Star Wars figures and all of my comic books from my childhood, which might or might not be worth any money, aren't worth any money because I played with them. I, I read them and I, and I folded over the pages and I didn't always put them perfectly back in the plastic sleeve and I, and I didn't keep it in the packaging. The thought of me as a kid getting a Star Wars figure that I then kept in the packaging, I mean, like, that would have been insanity as a kid. I mean, I had the thing out and playing with it before it hit the floor. It was, I mean, it's, maybe you're one of those people who put, you know, baseball cards in your bicycle spokes to make machine gun noises or something like this. Uh, this is, this, this is 10,000 times that. You understand, we don't have any of the originals of any book of the Bible. We don't have what John wrote. We don't have that. What John wrote the book of John, we don't have the original copy. Of course we don't. It was written on terrible paper 2,000 years ago the first version was, and then other people took it and they read it and they passed it along and they, they copied it and they passed it along and they copied it and, they, and, and the thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the ancient Greek New Testament that we have were being copied and passed and copied and passed and copied and passed around the world um, to have the impact that they have today. Now here's what's wild. There's a responsibility we bear for how we handle that. God did not supernaturally make sure no one ever intentionally or unintentionally made any mistakes or made any changes when they, when they copied it. You may have been raised with that too. I remember being told, for example, that the Bible's so magical that you can't burn pages. It doesn't burn. I remember being told that. Without, without going into any detail, I will just tell you, yes, yes, it can. And so this, this idea of going, man, this Bible's somehow some kind of magic. No, no, it's a responsibility we carry. God has given us his word, and we're responsible. It says over in 2 Timothy, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. We got this one? As a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, certainly Paul is mostly referring to the fact that Timothy needs to teach the word well. 
And I'm going to talk before we get done, hopefully, about how we do that, part of our mindset with this. But understand, this is, that's a responsibility that we have, how we handle his word. And the copiers knew this. And the copiers were extremely careful. See, the, the miracle isn't that there aren't any differences between the thousands of copies of the Greek New Testament, because there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of differences. We have 15, 20,000 ancient copies of the Greek New Testament. And there are hundreds of thousands of what are called variances between them. Hundreds of thousands of them. Now, before you panic, and some people, they hear that, and they're like, what? You need to know, like, when I was talking to David Smalley a year ago, the atheist guy who we were on the podcast with and who we invited to come here one night, he was really weirded out by this when he said, you mean you know this? Like, you, you already know this. You know this better than I do. Like, you know more about the textual analysis of Scripture than I do but you still believe. And I was like, still believe? This is the stuff that motivates me to trust the scripture that's in front of me. This does nothing but confirm my faith in scripture. That we apparently, we study this stuff with a fine tooth microscope. I mean, we, we dive into every, every letter, every word, and we find when they're different. So out of those hundreds of thousands of differences, I'll tell you a real common one is spelling. <coughs> right? So... One guy likes the word, like, it would be like if, 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 if uh, you read the, the British writing of the word shop, S-H-O-P-P-E, or color, C-O-L-O-U-R, and you go like, no, no, that should be S-H-O-P. Well, that makes up a lot of the differences between the different copies of the thousands of copies of the Greek New Testament that we have, ancient copies. Does that worry anybody? Of course not. shouldn't worry you at all. Or, or a different style of a word. Like the, the massive changes are the ones like that change the word. So to use, again, the British and English American concept is like lift an elevator. Like at some point, maybe an author changed a word to be a more up-to-date word that made sense to him or her. Even those are exceptionally rare. Let me tell you my favorite, one of the most common. One of the most common differences, variances. They don't, we don't like to call them differences because they're not, they don't make the text different. The message is the same. The message of the word is the same. The message of the sentence is the same. The message of the passage is the same. And even with the passages, even with the ones that create problems for us <coughs> at all, that have a little more difference in them, understand the gospel is never touched. There's no question of the message of Scripture. Out of thousands and thousands and thousands of copies, the message of Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is as clear in every single copy as the others. Each individual copy, though it might spell a word differently or it might have a word differently or it might even have a story in it that's not in another copy, the gospel is protected in every one of them and that is a miracle. That's just unthinkable. Human beings can't, we can't do that now with computers and printers. We make mistakes and we lose the meaning of a message and we change it. They were vitally protecting the message of scripture. One of my most favorite variances that shows up over and over again is the word amen. So what's cool about this is the older a copy is, the closer to the original, the less amens are in it. Well, you can imagine how that happens, right? Somebody's copying, and they're getting excited about what they're writing. Like, this, this is good stuff. Amen. <laughs> and they keep writing, and they just keep writing. And, then, and, and the next guy picks up that, and he's like, okay, I'm going to copy this for my group. And I, I read it, and amen, and read it, man, this is good stuff. This is, man, this is, Amen. 
And so the more, the more recent the copy is, the more amens are in it. Again, this doesn't, con- this doesn't concern us, but we need to be sophisticated and mature and understand <coughs> there are things in that Bible in front of you that probably aren't original. We know that because we are such great students of this. There are fantastic stories that go with this. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of Indiana Jones stories that go with copy, finding copies and, and ancient copies and having to bribe people and disguise yourself and sneak into places and fight off attackers. And, and it's, it's, there's some amazing stories as ancient copies have been found. As, as people have, have had, like, there's a, there was a copy that was hidden um, by the medieval Roman church that they wouldn't let anybody else have. And so there was a whole series of people. You imagine this is the whole Bible in Greek. There's a series of people who created a plan to, to figure out a way to, to sneak in and get in there and just copy a few words at a time because they would be searched or they left and then sneak out. And then, like this kind of stuff was happening in order to, to discover these copies of Scripture. It's, a, it's fascinating. It's wonderful to read. And, and let me tell you, Daniel Wallace, who I referenced, Dr. Daniel Wallace from DTS, if you want to search for him, he has multiple talks about the question of, is what we have what they wrote? Is what we have, do we have the book of John that John wrote? And, and here's what's really cool, so you'll know this. Even people who don't believe in the scripture of scripture, they don't believe in the power of scripture, even secular textual analysis, analysts will say that what we have is essentially what was written 2,000 years ago by these people. It is highly accepted for the documentation. It's among them, and there's nothing that comes close to it, by the way. Nothing else in ancient culture that comes even close to the accuracy we have. We can have great confidence in it. All that being said, I'm telling you all of that because you're going to see in the copy of the Bible in front of you, probably, a little note that says something like this. You see that in your Bible? Your Bibles have that? Something like that? Yeah. The story of the woman caught in adultery does not show up in John chapter 8 and about till about the year 400 AD. 400 years or 350 years after the life of Jesus Christ, this story gets added into the book of John. Now, what's wild is we have no and and by the way, so you'll know, pretty much all scholars accept it does not belong in the book of John. It is not a story of John. Um, the Greek's wrong. The language is wrong. Its location is terrible. Now, we now know why. It's where it is probably. But, but clearly, so we've been talking about the Feast of, of Booths, which has two main, these two main aspects to it that we talked about, the water ceremony and the light ceremony. Well, what you're going to see when we pick up in John 8, chapter 12, verse 12, is you're going to find, so Jesus in chapter 7 ends teaching about him being the water. Well, 12 verses later, he's going to talk about being the light. Clearly, this is still during the Feast of Booths or at the end of the Feast of Booths that he's teaching and connecting himself to that feast. But somewhere along the way, someone stuck this story in the middle. Pretty much everyone agrees it does not belong here and that it isn't by John. Now, what we don't know and what is greatly debated among Christian scholars is whether or not it's an authentic story of Jesus Christ. There's a second-hand reference that may be to this story as far back as A.D. 125. If this is the story being referenced in A.D. 125, then certainly it probably is an authentic story of Jesus Christ that just wasn't added in Scripture. In fact, sometimes when you go further back, where it is is in the book of Luke, 
which makes a whole lot more sense. The story would make a lot more sense in the book of Luke than it does in the book of John. So maybe it's supposed to be in the book of Luke and it somehow got moved or lost and added back in. We don't, we don't know. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of different supposition about that as to whether it belongs there. But you need to hear. Therefore, I will not be teaching this as Scripture. I am not confident that this was written by one of the apostles. I think it's likely it certainly sounds like the kind of thing Jesus does, right? It certainly fits in with what we talk about. But understand, if there was some doctrinally significant situation in John chapter 8, it, we, we would not be changing doctrine based on John chapter 8, not this section of John chapter 8. That would be a mistake. You don't want to build doctrine off a passage that you're uncertain should be in the passage. We actually know probably why it's here is because in the 400s, they started writing devotional books. Isn't that cool? You ever thought about that? the daily devotional type of thing, your daily reading. And so the daily readings are being written at that time. Well, what you just had was two things just happened in John chapter 7. One, Jesus is called illiterate by the teachers of the law. And second, we're talking about a trial, that, that people want to throw Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin for a trial. Probably what happened is back in the 400s, someone said, well, you know, we've got that old story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, which shows a trial and shows Jesus writing. So let's put that by this in a, in a devotional type book, in a daily reading type of book, and then someone along the way, somebody accidentally mistook the daily reading kind of book as where that belonged in Scripture, and so they added it in. Again, is it Scripture? Don't know. Is it an authentic story of Jesus Christ? Don't know. Um, don't let that trouble you. Again, for some people it does. We're going to spend some time looking at it a little bit today and a little bit next week, the passage and what we can learn from it. Um, but just understand, I'm not going to be teaching this. I do not see this passage as carrying the same significance as John 7 and the rest of John 8. Now, this isn't the only one of these. So let's look at another one. Let's turn over in your Bible to Mark chapter 16. <coughs> Sorry. Mark chapter 16, verse 9, you probably have another little note in your Bible that looks something like this. There's no close second to Mark chapter 16 being a variance that is dangerous. There's really not any other variances that have any doctrinal teaching in them, including John 8. You can't build doctrine off of John 8. But, but you might could off of Mark 16. Mark 16. So here's what's wild. So they, the paper was so poorly made, and so, but yet so valuable, that when they wrote copies of the Gospels, what they would do is they would compile them directly behind each other. Matthew, the last line of Matthew, the next line was the first line of Mark. And in many of the ancient copies we have of Mark, Mark ends in 16.8, and then there's a big gap. Like literally blank space, and then Luke begins. So I had to, I had to write a paper in seminary as to, to explain that blank. What is your opinion on why that, why that gap is there? Cool thing about seminary is you can write an opinion paper and still be wrong, turns out. Um, so why is that there? My opinion is they lost it. That someone was writing and they got to, to Mark chapter 16 and verse 8. And by the way, all the verses are added in later too. That's not part of scripture. The chapter headings, not part of scripture, all added in later. And, and what happened is their copy was damaged by water or damaged by fire and had, or had worn out and was illegible and they didn't want to write it, so they left a blank there in case someone found that ending later and they could put it in. That's my opinion. Don't know. 
What happened was a few hundred years later, someone decides to just add something in. There's almost no way that 16, 9 through 20 is, is actually scriptural. Um, it was almost certainly added in later by someone who didn't like that gap there. And so what they did is they took a little bit of Matthew, and they took a little bit of Luke, and they took a little bit of Acts, and they kind of compiled it together and made something that sounded good. I, I don't know their heart behind that. They don't, they don't write heresy or anything. It's not like it's evil, but they just stuck in there that's something that seems like they were just trying their best to help everybody out. I don't know. No one knows. But you do end up with some dangerous stuff in there accidentally, like for the fact, I think probably what's going on is the author put something in there about the fact that the apostle Paul had been bitten by a snake and hadn't died. And so he thought, well, this will be cool to put in there. I'll put that's, I'll mention, hey, and some people will be bitten by snakes and not die. I'll just say Jesus predicted that. Well, the problem is that's turned into a movement within some very odd churches that where they handle snakes as a part of worship. Listen, let me just tell you, don't build doctrine on Mark 16. It's a good way to get bitten by a snake. And, and that happens to them all the time, to drink poison. And, but what's interesting is Mark 16 doesn't even tell you you're supposed to do that. It just says some people will do that. Um, and they did. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he did that. So chances are hundreds of years later, this section was added back in. But notice, as you read through Scripture, there are brackets that tell you this because we have studied this and studied this and studied this and, and dug into it and shown this is... This is where these passages are. What this means is, guys, is that the other passages, the other ones you're reading, the other 99 point something percent of the New Testament that you have, there's no question to them. And we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies. But as you're reading, you'll, every once in a while, you'll see a word and there'll be a little note. Now that you know to look for them, there'll be a little note that says, some manuscripts say this. Or there'll be a verse missing that always throws people off when they're reading. It's like 8, 11, then 8, 13. What the heck? Well, look down at the bottom of the page. Probably a little note that says 8, 12. The oldest manuscripts don't have 8, 12, for example. That's how deeply this has been studied, how many thousands of copies have been found, how well what we have has been verified. In fact, maybe the most practical one of these changes that may throw some of you off is that back in the day, in your days of mega death and quiet riot, and you carved 666 into a desk somewhere. <laughs> Hopefully you did not tattoo it on your body or something because it's, you know, have multiple levels of embarrassment here. So um, if you turn over in Revelation chapter 13, you're going to see this little note. That it turns out that the number of the beast is probably not 666, but is in fact 616. Now, the irony is, the first place I heard that was Dan Wallace teaching on this. He'd done a lot of revelation work. The, the irony of it is, we still don't know what it means. That didn't help. It wasn't like, oh, 616. Well, now we know exactly what's being talked about here. It's like, no, it's 616, and we still, we still have no idea how to interpret this correctly. The bad news is, those people who carved 666 on their bodies somewhere like, oops. You don't even have the correct number of the beast. That's... That's got to be embarrassing, right? To try to worship Satan and then do it badly. Like, that's just... Anyway, there are places like that. I want you to hear, like, this, this, none of these in, in any way, not only do they not concern me, they give me great comfort. That this is being studied and poured into. It helps me know that things that could be error, including intentional error. There are people who have made copies of the Bible intentionally leaving things out they didn't like. I'd love that we have thousands of copies that would reveal that. I love that we have that. I have such great confidence in this as God's word and the power to be revealed to us and soberly accept the fact that we're responsible for how we handle it. 
All right, so let me spend just a few minutes here as we start into actually looking at chapter 8, as that's that story that I just gave to you. Um, so when we start there at the beginning, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, these are the people who are supposed to be keeping the peace, these teachers of the law, the Pharisees, etc. And here they're kind of risking a riot. Jesus is sitting here in the temple in this account, no matter where this was supposed to have happened, probably not where it is in the narration. But at some point, let's, let's say that it is a true story, that, that Jesus was sitting in the temple and they brought a woman caught in adultery to him. And they say this woman was caught in adultery. Now Moses tells us we should stone such a person to death. Now, first of all, they're, they're really playing a little fast and loose with the teaching of Moses here. Moses does say you're supposed to execute them. He does not specifically command stoning them, although that was typically how they did it. Um, that was reserved for other things specifically. So they're, they're, they're being a little shoddy with their Bible here, to be honest, what's going on here. And we don't know what this means. We don't know who this woman is. We know nothing about her. Is she a professional adulteress, so to speak? Um, is this what she does for a living? Was she a false witness? Was all of this just a show trial meant to, meant to somehow trap Jesus and there really was no uh, adultery at all? It could be, one author I read said that it could be that she, by caught in the act could just mean she was behaving shamefully with men. It may not literally mean caught in the act, but most commentaries think this is liter- what they are claiming is to have literally caught her in the act of adultery, which certainly would imply entrapment. That they, they, they set her up for this so that they could set Jesus up. They asked Jesus, what do you say? They said this to test him, verse 6 that they might have some charge to bring against him. They're trying to trap him between the law of Moses and the law of Rome. Rome does not allow Jews or any of the people who they've subjugated to have to do capital punishment. Only they are allowed to do it. And yet Moses says you're supposed to execute someone caught in adultery. Maybe that's what they're trying to trap him with. So he bends down and starts writing. <coughs> and then as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. We'll talk about that a little more next week, I think, just to touch on it. But, and then he bent down and started writing in the dirt again. When they heard it, they went away one by one from older to younger, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on at this. Um, some people say that what's going on is that this woman has been caught in the act of adultery and probably is not fully clothed. And so Jesus, in honor of her, is just not making eye contact with her. He's not looking at her, protecting his own eyes. That's possible. Um, The idea, though, of bringing her less than fully clothed into the temple would have certainly been a huge uh, problem. Maybe that's possible. All of it is going to be a guess. One common one is that Jesus is just ignoring them. There's nothing special about riding in the dirt. He's just treating them with contempt. Kind of a, oh, I'm sorry, were you talking to me? Kind of thing. Like, why why why, why are you bringing me into this? Not my problem. We don't really know. That could be it. Um, maybe he was writing the name of the names of the ones present. Maybe he was writing their names. Some people think he was writing their names and their sins. That the Holy Spirit had given him supernatural insight into this. Some people think he was writing a message. One author said maybe he was writing the word forgiven in the dirt. Um, or as, uh, as Bob Livesey told me that um, he had read, grace is practiced here. We don't know. Um, Maybe he's writing from Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
there certainly seems to be a little bit of a sexist problem here. This woman was caught in adultery. I'm pretty sure that means they caught a man in the act of adultery. As I understand the definition, this, this means there were two people caught in an act. And they've only brought one of them before Jesus. And maybe Jesus is pointing out, well, you've not done your job. You, you're so important for you to follow the scripture of Moses, and yet you're ignoring half of the scripture of Moses. Maybe it's even which one of you men is the one who was caught with her and is trying to get out of it by bringing the attention to her. Who knows? Maybe that's possible. It's also possible Jesus was writing in the, in the dirt here, in the sand, on the, the, the dust on the temple floor. Maybe he was writing down something like one of the Exodus 23 passages about the fact that it's a sin to bring a false charge against somebody. Or that it's a sin to not bring two witnesses when you have a false charge against somebody. Like the, maybe that's what he's pointing out is that you bringing her here is a bigger sin than the one you're claiming that she did. You are literally breaking one of the Ten Commandments in the temple. At least she wasn't doing this in the temple. Don't know. We really don't know exactly what he was writing. I found three um, totally independent sources, not copying and pasting each other as people on the internet tend to do. Three independent sources, but I couldn't find an ancient source for this, so I'm still looking for this, but this is intriguing to me. <clears throat> so often when you can find the Jewish connection, it, it, it really helps if you can find whatever the ancient Jewish connection was. So I love this idea. Allegedly, what happens, according to these three sources, is that, that when someone was brought into the temple with a charge before the Sanhedrin, what they would do is the Sanhedrin would write the charge in the dust on the tile floor of the temple Write the actual charge. Just write it down. What were they being said? This person was caught um, stealing from their neighbor. Okay, stealing from neighbor, written in the dust. And then the Sanhedrin would say, bring forth the witnesses. Well, if you failed to bring the two or more necessary witnesses, or if the witness's story did not work, <clears throat> if it did not corroborate the, the testimony that was being made, what they didn't want to do, and we can certainly understand this today in this day and age, this is fascinating that what, as I learned this, um, that, that what they do, the reason they didn't write it on paper is because if it's a false charge, they don't want any record of it. They don't want someone's life destroyed by a false charge. And so if you came forward and you made an allegation, they wrote it in, a, in the sand so that if you failed to have the correct witnesses or if you failed to have what, the, the type of witnesses that would convict this person, that the Sanhedrin could just go... <laughs> Ignore it. Never happened. That's a fascinating conversation to think like. The, the wisdom 2,000 years ago of saying, there's a, there's a way to handle this and all the other ways, and this is how we're going to deal with it. It's really intriguing. If that's the case, then probably what Jesus was doing is they came to him as though he was the Sanhedrin. They came to him as the judge. Hey, teacher, this one was caught in adultery. So he writes down, adultery. And maybe that's when he starts writing other people's sins. But what he actually says, by the way, and we'll get to this more probably next week because we're out of time, but to say, when he says, those, who, those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone, the Greek there probably actually is, let the first among you cast the stone. Because the first two people who are supposed to cast a stone in one of these situations was witness number one and witness number two. You had to have two witnesses to find someone guilty of a crime like this. And so it may be that Jesus is literally saying, okay, adultery. Witness number one, step forward. Jesus, they're trying to trap Jesus in breaking the law of Rome. And Jesus is putting it back on them. You're the one who says she committed adultery. You throw a stone at her. 
then you'll be the one breaking the law of Rome or the law of Moses. You take care of it. Well, none of them want to throw a stone at her here in the temple. There are Roman soldiers everywhere. And they go, okay, you win. This is like the denarius and paying taxes. This is like all these situations they come to Jesus with, and Jesus just literally outplays them because he knows the law better than they do. I'm just the judge. You're the witness. I don't throw stones. You do. Okay, if she's guilty, fine. Witness number one, step forward, make your proclamation, and throw your stone. No one wants to do that, so they all leave. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on, but that seems really plausible, that that's the situation going on here. Here's the things I want. Here's the couple of points I want to make as we're dealing with today, and as we kind of, um, and I'm going to touch on some of this again next week because there's a lot more here. There's two things I want to comment on that I think may be valuable for us from this passage because they're not just from this passage. One author says this. <clears throat> so take this. Let's take this as a as just a really cool story, whether it's true or not, and ask the question: Why wouldn't the author tell us what Jesus wrote in the dust? What's with all this supposition we have to do? And one commentator said this, the reason that the, that their author, whether it's John or not, Luke or not, didn't tell us what's in the dust is because that forces us to put our sin in the dust. That forces us to go, well, what if I was there? What if I was one of the people who brought her in? Which secret sin am I pretending like I don't have? That if Jesus were to start going like, okay, well, let's start writing all our sins here in the dust. What sins would he write? Is he going to write the name of someone who you know you have an inappropriate relationship with? Maybe, maybe he knows how you've allowed guilt to overcome you and to overtake you so that you don't live that life anymore. Maybe he knows you're bearing a, a hostility against other Christians or against other people, and so he's writing that. He knows you and he are the only, maybe the only ones who know that you're cheating on your spouse, that you're abusing your kids, that you're whatever it is, that sin inside of you that that there's an addiction in your heart, whatever that is, Jesus is not, by not putting what Jesus wrote, this commentator says, it forces us to imagine what Jesus would have written if it was us. If you're the woman caught in adultery, is what you need to know is that Jesus is writing, grace is found here, go and sin no more. If you're, if you're one of the arrogant, judgmental types like the Pharisees, or maybe you're someone who's trying to trick your way out of trusting in Jesus, maybe he's writing doubt or dishonesty or whatever. I, I think this is a cool question. It's an interesting thought experiment for each one of us to say, what is written in the dust if we are the one being dragged before Jesus or if we're the one dragging people before Jesus? What's he writing in the dust for us? Whether or not this story should be in the Bible, and whether or not it's by John, or whether it's by Luke, or whether it's by none of them, whether it's an authentic story of Jesus Christ or not, this is insight that is healthy for us to be asking. How does his word apply to me? Now, understand, another thing I'm going to talk about next week is the idea of judgment. So I do want to comment on this. Everything we sang today, and everything that we're going to sing, and everything that we've talked about if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, understand <clears throat> that Jesus Christ in his judgment, that is who we answer to, is him. And there's going to come a day that we stand before Almighty God in judgment. And I told some, seminary, some women's students this week, a, a theology class that I teach, when that happens, and he says, what do you plea? What's your case? Here's my recommendation. Don't make a case. Fall on your face before the judge and say, I place myself on the mercy of the court in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, 
and then shut your mouth. No explanations, no excuses, no, well, but only my motivation was that. No, quiet. We are all guilty, sufficiently so. We have all offended an almighty, perfect, holy God. Fortunately, praise God, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God and then eternal life. So we go to him and we say, I'm falling on the truth of the phrase, but you. I sin, but you forgive. I sin, but you paid. That's the idea here. But know that even in the midst of that truth, that doesn't mean we don't each answer to God for the way we live our lives. We each get to have a conversation with Almighty God about the roles that he's given us. He's going to talk to me about what kind of son I was. He's going to talk to me about what kind of husband I've been. Fundamentally speaking, I don't answer to Ginger for the kind of husband that I am. I answer to God. I don't answer to my parents for the kind of son I've been. I answer to God. Ginger doesn't answer to me for the kind of wife she's been. She answers to God. You don't answer to me for what kind of church member you've been. You answer to God for that. That, that brings a huge comfort because he knows what he's doing and he's perfect in his grace and mercy and justice and all that kind of stuff. Praise God. At the same time that it is comforting, it is also sobering to say, because he knows about all of it. So understand, as we're dealing with this, this woman gets a pretaste of what we are going to face. Everyone in the world can come and go, Meh. your parents can come and go, you didn't honor me. But you know what? Their judgment makes no difference if God says, no, no. Yes, he did. I say he did. Well, God's the one who's right. Well, you weren't a great husband, or you weren't a great wife, or you weren't great kids, or you weren't a great mom or dad, or whatever. Like, okay, well, that's certainly true. And yet, at the same time, God is the one who judges, not us. So she faces the judgment of man. And with one question, they all walk away. And she faces the judgment of Jesus Christ, who does not tolerate her sin, tells her to leave her sin, and to walk away from her sin, and at the same time, does not condemn her. We'll get there next week. Wherever that is for us, rest in that and wrestle with that, which I think is appropriate. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word to change us and, and the power of your truth to change us. And as the truth is revealed in Scripture, um, Lord, I pray that you will help us to be humble and accept that. And certainly the truth, even if we never ran into these verses from John uh, that are in our Bibles in John 8, we would know this truth, that, that you call us to look at our own hearts and to listen to your word and evaluate what's going on in our lives, to judge the fruit that we produce based on the truth of your scripture and the power of your spirit, that your spirit is the sanctifying power in our life to change us and make us more holy. And Father, I pray that you would help us to emphasize that, to live in that, to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, what would be in our lives that would not be pleasing to you? Lord, search us and know us and seek, look at our most inward parts and heal us of those things that are offensive to you. But I pray that the power of your word to teach us about your judgment will comfort us and convict us. And I pray that, that we will respond with repentance before you in our lives. We will humbly seek your face. And finally, Lord, I want to thank you for the amazing good gift of your scripture. You were under no obligation to give this to us. But you did so that we could study and learn and think and challenge and trust and, and hope. I got to thank you that 
um, that we get the chance to hear the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray we will take that to others as well in his name. Amen.